have a seat. Uh, there are like uh, activity packs and stuff in the back for kids, parents, if you want to grab one, if your kids don't have one and they need something. Um, not that I won't be riveting to them, but if perchance you need something, they're back there. Man, we got Sharon's back with the band, Jake is back from college reading. This is like a homecoming service, I'm feeling good. And there's a lot of people in the room, so I, I'm going to do about an hour-long sermon on tithing, just because I got you all here, and I really feel the Lord. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, we are continuing to move through. Um, I keep on feeling, I feel like I'm going to have backup singers uh, join me at any moment here. Uh, <laughs> we're continuing to move through the Advent text. We are in the Gospel of John this week. We're in chapter 1 of John, uh, verses 6 through 9, and then skipping to 9. 19 through 28. So 6 through 9, 19 through 28. Uh, we're still uh, kind of discussing part of the story here that's got John uh, the Baptist, although he's not actually called John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. He's just John. And, uh, and so let, let's go ahead and read it. We'll think through a little bit of what this might have for us this Advent season. It says this, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 and 19 through 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 19. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, well, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. So as I look back at uh, my college career, I don't know if career is the right word for what I had in college, but in my, my time in college, there was one type of training I got that had the biggest practical effect on my life. Like day to day still has an effect on how I live my life. Um, it did not come from any of the amazing classes I may have taken, although I'm thankful for those professors and the professors we have in the room. That was not where I learned in the classroom. It wasn't in the leadership roles that I took on at different points and, and stretched those kind of muscles for the first time. That was important, but it wasn't from the leadership roles. It wasn't from the church volunteering I did as much as church volunteering gets you directly into the gates of heaven. There's none of those things. Hands down, the thing that most altered who I was, how I saw myself, and how I kind of approached the world and, and tools I took with me, uh, was being part of an improv comedy troupe. I got dared to try out with a friend, and I did, and I made it. And as someone who was petrified to be in front of people up to that point in my life, I got to be a part of a team of people who got up in front of groups without having a script and making things up on the spot. Now, I make no claims that we were any good as performers. We performed all of our shows in front of a home crowd. It was all our friends 
So they thought we were funny. We thought we were hilarious. I'm sure objectively it was pretty terrible. But it was exactly what I needed and when I needed it. Um, it addressed a lot to help me relieve a lot of like persistent anxieties I'd had up to that point. It was kind of uh, immersion therapy, like, you know, you're afraid of heights, so let's go bungee jumping kind of deal. Um, kind of worked like that. It taught me to feel okay about being on stage in front of people and possibly looking dumb in front of them. That was a huge fear of mine. And now I stand on stage and look dumb in front of people for a living. But even more important than those things, which were important for me, it instilled in me the, the, the concept and the idea of building through agreement. And I'll tell you how that works in the kind of improv world a little bit here. You're going to get an inside look. You're, you're going to be able to perform in front of crowds by the time I'm done telling you about this. In improv, there's, there's, a, there's a rule that is like the first commandment, and everything always ends up coming back to it in improvisation uh, theater. And what that is is called the discipline of yes and. Yes and, right, is the shorthand for it, and we would call it out to each other all the time when we saw people violating this rule. Basically what it is, is that you learn in order to create a story with someone, you have to agree with them in order to build something together. You have to agree with them. Even when you don't want to, you have to agree in order to build, right? Now that is a difficult thing to learn because our human nature, especially if you're anxious or you're nervous or especially if you're trying to be funny, uh, generally our default posture is to negate each other. Uh, almost everyone, when they're trying to be funny, when they're first learning what funny is, they resort to this. The earliest kid's version of arguing or mocking goes something like, you're dumb, no, you're dumb. Better yet, you're dumb, no, you're dumb. You do it in a different voice, and then it's like, that's just the, you know, that wins the conversation for a child. You've all heard that, right? You, you negate, you block, is what we call it in, in improv. But what they teach you in improv is that when you're in a scene with someone, they, call, they called it the lemming rule, which was, uh, and this is actually not true in nature, but the, uh, the lemmings were, it was said that they would accidentally all kill themselves together on accident, right? They're just kind of dumb and they follow the leader. And so if one of them would run off the cliff, the entire little herd of little lemmings would just go running right off with them, right? And we called it the lemming rule, which is if we're in a scene together and you run us off a cliff, I'm running behind you, right? I'm saying yes to it. And so this concept of yes and uh, is a way that you build a story. Uh, it's how you keep something going. So typically when people first started doing improv for the first time, they would begin the scene and they would start negating. And we'd have to try and teach them how not to do that. And we would teach ourselves the same thing. So in the instance of someone yelling, you're dumb, right? So if in a, I'm in an improv scene with you, and you have the first line in the scene, and you look at me, and you say, you're dumb to me, I just go with it. I'm a lemming. I'm going to run off that dumb cliff with you, right? And I don't say, no, I'm not. I'm smart, or no, you're dumb. You say, you're dumb, and a better kind of response to something like this would be, yes, I am, and yet you still let me fly the plane, so whose fault is it that we're in this mess, right? So I've agreed with the premise, and then I've built on it. And now, instead of having two people up there just arguing back and forth and going nowhere, we've created a scene. I'm not very smart. We both know it. We've been in a plane together. Something has obviously gone wrong, and now we have something to work with, right? Does that make sense? Yes, and. So this yes, and kind of agreement principle is the core of building any kind of story when you're on stage together. Uh, that's how you make something. And I can't tell you how important 
that concept is to me in all my life, in the, all my work, in my relationships. I believe in the yes and concept. I believe in trying to create with other people, and that is a core of how that works. Uh, I even think there's something to be said about God here. Um, God as Master Improviser is a book I'm never going to have the time or uh, smarts to write. Uh, but I, uh, as a kind of a free will guy, I believe that God is kind of in the yes and business. God is always building something bigger and better, but I've got the choices to make, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and God takes them and works with them, right? Uh, I believe in the yes and concept. And because I believe in that, I also have kind of a disdain for definition by negation. I just don't like it. I see it all the time, and when I see it, uh, it makes me upset. Um, It's one of the reasons I hate our national politics so much right now, because all our national politics seems to be, to me, is a bunch of bad improvisers. They are a group of groups of people who get all their attention, even having never passed any meaningful legislation, but they spend all day negating others and acting like they're doing something and building something when actually nothing is happening at all, right? That's why I don't like our national politics. There is no building of anything in any communal sense. We even, I even took this on when we first started uh, Ecclesia. I... I worked at another church in town for three years before we started Ecclesia, and I didn't leave on bad terms. I wasn't mad at them. I just knew I was supposed to do something different. And when we accidentally planted Ecclesia and started another church in a house, there were some folks who started showing up because they were mad at the church I used to work at, and they thought we were some kind of rebel alliance against that group. And for three I mean, honestly, I think it was three years, we started off every service, particularly if I knew there was someone in the room that hadn't been there before, I would get up in front of everyone and I'd say, welcome to Ecclesia. If you're here because you're mad at another church, we're not your place. That's not what we're here for. We're not defined by what we're against, right? And, uh, and then we would move on. And we had a lot of one-time visitors for three years. It was a terrible church growth strategy. <laughs> but I deeply believe that that was how we were supposed to build the foundation of who we are. Not by what we're not, but what we are, what we stand for, right? Not negation, but an agreement and building on something positive. I'm deeply opposed to defining ourselves by what we are not. And then along comes this text with John, not called John the Baptist here, but John, and it is nonstop negation. In fact, the only positive affirmation that John makes about himself in this whole verse, these verses we just read is a vague quote from Isaiah. Everything else is negated. They ask him a positive question, a chance for him to identify and and define himself. Who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. We didn't ask you if you were the Christ. We said, who are you, right? But his confession, his positive confession is the negation. I'm not the Christ. Okay, well, are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? I'm not the prophet. Well, thanks, right? We're really building something here, John, right? John may be perfect for preparing the way, but I would kick him out of the improv troupe on day one. And when I read it, my natural inclination is, want to cor- is to want to correct John on this misstep. But, according to this gospel, the beginning of the good news in the gospel of John is not a stable, it's not a miraculous pregnancy, it begins with who and what John is not. So even though I don't endorse this as a general posture in the world, what is that? Is that sound or is that something else? (laughs) Even though, let's just go with it. 
do I need to move these microphones away or something? Oh, okay. Can, yeah, someone check and make sure it's not a fire alarm or something. Let's yes and this fire alarm and see what... <laughs> all right. I'm going to keep going. Someone's going to tell us if there's something to worry about, all right? Sound good? Yes and? All right, here we go. Where was I at? Say what? Okay. Any clue what that is? That is so weird. All right. Can y'all, is that too loud to, to listen to someone talk, or, or can we keep moving? All right, we're going to keep moving. The truth is, as much as I don't like it, negation is an effective approach in some situations. Amen. Who prayed for that? Don't ever say God doesn't answer prayer. Look at that. <laughs> the truth is that negation is entirely appropriate in certain situations, right? I think about it like the difference between, uh, between painting and sculpting, right? Painting is a yes and version of art. You take a blank canvas and you start adding things to it. You yes and, and whatever gets put on there gets incorporated into the larger image that will one day be there, right? You're adding things to it to create something. Sculpting is kind of the opposite sense, right? Sculpting is kind of an act of negation for creation. The image is created by removing things. You have the sculpture starts with a large block, and it only begins to take shape when we take things away, when we negate. It's creation by negation. It's addition by subtraction, right? So you have painting and you have sculpting, and John is a sculptor. He is not a painter. And it's the right approach in this case. And I know John's been waiting for my approval on this, but I'm going to go ahead and say he did the right thing. It's the right thing in this case because he's not operating with a blank canvas. There is a lot of baggage attached to all the terms and all the ideas that he is trying to address in his uh, sermons and in his baptism. A lot of expectations about the, what the Messiah would look like, how the Messiah would behave, how the Messiah would lead. Convictions about how the world works and how God will or won't work within that world, right? John has all these things that are on the table that he needs to figure out what to do with before he can get to what he's there to say. So John has to chip away at a lot before anyone can begin to see, begin to see the image he wants them to see. John says no to the world as it normally works by taking everyone out to the desert. He says no to the comfort and convenience of the world as normal by the weird clothes he wears and the disgusting diet he takes on, right? He says no to the traditional understandings of God and the Messiah and the prophets. In essence, John sticks out his arm and he just clears the table. Because until he clears that table, no one will get to feast on what's supposed to be on their plates. So John makes the right decision here. Now our problem in this Advent season, if we're going to take this to heart, this idea that sometimes negation is the right way, our problem is that negation is not only bad improv, but it's sort of the opposite of how we do the Christmas season, isn't it? For us, this is a season of addition, not subtraction. I buy more stuff, I definitely consume more food, I add a few more pounds, I accrue more debt, I add, add, add. That's what the season is all about. That's why there's add in Advent, right? <laughs> it's math. And if you all are like me, when you get into the, towards the end of the season on a year-to-year -year basis, if you keep doing this add, 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 
you begin to feel the weight of it. And I don't just mean that literally, although that happens sometimes. You begin to kind of feel the weight of it. And I'm going to say something that no one else may relate to. Maybe it's just me. But I have many, many years found myself uh, sitting after all the presents are open and there's wrapping everywhere and there's you know presents and I, maybe I got some great stuff that I've wanted and maybe it was just a perfect Christmas morning on a lot of levels. But as you sit in the midst of all the kind of present carnage and all that kind of stuff, I kind of feel a deep sense of dissatisfaction. I sit in the midst of all this consumption and all this addition and it kind of feels like if I just binged on a full box of donuts. It kind of tasted good, but I'm kind of regretting something about it. It felt like a bad life choice on some level. Right? And I watch it happen to the kids too. Uh, they get all this stuff in one day and then they're just not quite right for a little while, right? And everywhere we go for the next couple of weeks, they deserve everything they see that they want. And it's just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of does this weird thing to us. I think sometimes we celebrate a little too much addition <laughs> in this season. It's like we celebrate this season by packing more and more clay on top of the marble block instead of chipping away at it. And we never reveal what was really there underneath. Now, I'm not saying, and I'm not trying to be a Grinch here, I'm not saying we shouldn't exchange presents, we shouldn't enjoy good meals together, we shouldn't enjoy the holidays, or any of those things we only get to do like once a year. By all means, lean into it. But as I thought about it this week, and I thought about my offense at John's negation, as I thought about it, I realized that my life and my faith personally, maybe this is true for you too, my life and my faith could probably use a little more sculpting and not just painting. I always tend to want to make things better or become the person I'm supposed to be by addition. And the truth is I would probably do more to clarify what I, the life I'm supposed to lead if I took some things away, right? Much like my physical health, I would probably do better if I did more push-aways at the table than push-ups at the gym. I need to say no to a little more if I want to be prepared for Christ's moment-by-moment arrival in my life. Again, I think there's no better uh, example than probably our national politics, and particularly the fact that, and I'm sorry to break this bad news for you, we're getting ready to enter into an election year. And every time I've talked about that with someone or it's come up in conversation, in fact, today it came up in conversation, it came up like someone was just, just about nauseous by saying it. Every part of a presidential election year will attempt to add itself to every part of our life. Our politics, our home, our TV, our everything, right? It just tries to inject itself into everything. To add the election to every part of my life. We don't have to let that happen. I personally know for a fact that I need to say no to most of it. Adding that simply will not make me more joyful, more loving, more peaceful. In fact, quite the opposite. Now for me, I still plan on being informed on the issues. I will vote my conscience, but I will not be watching cable news. I will not be listening to partisan podcasts. I will not be arguing with other people about it on social media. I got called Satan last time. I'm not doing it again. I'm choosing to refuse to let that kind of poison my heart and my mind and everything that I'm supposed to be doing in this world. I'm just not doing it. Negating it. For me, that's a fast track towards some kind of malaise and hopelessness. And a lot of you are already starting to feel it, right? For me, I think this year my New Year's resolutions will be a lot less of a to-do list and more of a to-don't list. 
I'm ready to clear the table a little bit. Spend my time, my heart, my life on the things that actually matter. To chisel away until I get down to that essence of what life is supposed to be. Because there's just so much noise and stuff that gets added on all the time. John's audience here is in need of some sculpting. They need someone to sweep the table off. The way religion was practiced in the temple system at the time, that same temple system that would later want Christ dead, needed to be carved out. Their image of who the Messiah is and how the Messiah would would, uh, give them victory needed deletion. Their relationship with power and victory and, and, and needed to get carved away. So John steps out in front of this crowd in the desert and he starts sculpting. He takes a hammer and he starts knocking off the pieces that don't need to be there. Because ultimately until the clouds are wiped away, the image of God in Christ will never be clearly seen. Until the table is cleared off of all the junk, we'll never get to the feast. So maybe in this season of addition, we can take John's words to heart. I would bet if you were like me, you need some things chopped as well. What in your life needs the sculptor's hand? What ideas, what practices, what habits, what beliefs would serve you better on the cutting room floor? What keeps us from a more clear and more beautiful image of who God is and who we are in the light of that God's love? I know I usually do Christmas by addition. But some addition by subtraction is probably in order for me. Perhaps this year, we should just let John come down our collective chimneys, do some bad improv, and take some stuff out of the house. Let's pray.